Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. If you were living in the city of Rome on the morning of the 24th of August in the year 410, you would have woken to the sounds of war horns. But you wouldn't have been too concerned. The Goths had been camped outside the city for days, and you were sure the mighty walls and majestic Roman garrison would keep them at bay. After all, this was Rome. But, in a sudden moment of terrifying realisation, the horns sounded closer this time. Then the screams began. Running to the window and looking down at the streets, you saw the stuff your nightmares were made of. The Goths were inside the city. Welcome to the Sack of Rome. Understanding how the Eternal City was allowed to befall such an unthinkable fate, we need to do some detective work. So, let's paint a picture. If you've listened to the first two episodes of this series, you'll know that the Goths had rampaged throughout Thrace and the Balkans for six years, when they had been double-crossed at a murderous dinner party in 376. And that they had finally made peace in 382, and been settled in semi-autonomous lands in Thrace. Now, 25 years later in 407, the western leader Stilicho then sought Gothic help against the Rhine invaders who were trashing Gaul. The only problem was that the Goths owed their allegiance, such as it was, to the Eastern Empire, and when Constantinople refused to play ball, Stilicho did something astonishing. Threatening war, he induced the Goths to make a military alliance against the Eastern Roman Empire and said he'd support them with a sizeable stack of cash and a large army. Having been subject to Eastern injustices for several years, the Goths were keen and moved south into Albania to await Stilicho. But things now began to move quickly out of control. While he convinced the Roman Senate to pay the Goths £4,000 of gold, Stilicho couldn't afford to live up to his promise of sending them troops. Faced as he was with the twin threats of the Rhine invaders and the usurper Constantine, moving the army of Italy against the Eastern Roman Empire now would have been tantamount to suicide. It's almost certain that Stilicho had no intention of starting a huge, east-west civil war, but was using bluff and bluster to try to get Constantinople to back down. Whatever the case, having been left out in the cold, the Goths started to get agitated. They had essentially been convinced to declare war on the Eastern Roman Empire and then abandoned. And fairly understandably, they weren't that happy about it and started pointing the war drums not at the east, but the West. Stilicho must have been getting nervous, but as if things weren't bad enough for him, he was facing such serious internal opposition to his plans that he was eventually deposed by rivals. He fled with some loyal men, but a mutinous Roman army unit captured him and he was eventually executed in 408. In short, 
Stilicho had gambled, and gambled badly. Constantinople had called his bluff, and now Gaul was up in flames. He was dead, and the Goths had been left hanging. Enter Alaric, the Gothic king. Enraged by how things had gone, he marched his army into Italy in the autumn of 408. He demanded a deal with the Roman West that they be granted highly autonomous lands around the Alpine passes close to the imperial court at Ravenna. By this time, it was Ravenna rather than Rome that was the seat of imperial government. And while the Senate still sat in Rome, and the city still retained all of its symbolic cachet, real power lay at Ravenna. It's no wonder then that the Romans had big problems with this. No Roman politician wanted to be seen as a goth appeaser, and besides, settlement near Ravenna would have allowed them far too close a proximity to the emperor. So, the Gothic demands were flatly rejected, and the smouldering ember of Gothic resentment at the way the Romans were treating them now became a fire. And just at the crucial moment, the Romans threw jet fuel into it. In a classic case of fear-fueled xenophobia, native Romans in Italy began massacring the families of Goths who had been drafted into the Roman army. These families of women and children had been courted throughout northern Italy and were now slain indiscriminately. Unsurprisingly, the incensed and grief-stricken Gothic menfolk of the Roman army revolted and joined Alaric. In response to the massacre and his rejected demands, Alaric made a beeline for Rome, and as they went, wrought destruction far and wide. When they got there, enough slaves forcefully left their servitude to take Alaric's army to an overwhelming 40,000 men. And it seems probable that most of them were the survivors of a separate Gothic invasion of Italy back in 406. So, these new additions were not former field hands and Roman pillow plumpers. They were seasoned warriors, probably quite eager to get back at the Romans who had enslaved them. This new Gothic supergroup, larger than anything yet seen, would from now on be called the Visigoths. There was no question that the Roman army of Italy could take this supergroup on. Even if it had won, it would doubtless have been so savaged that Constantine would have been able to march straight into Ravenna and complete his coup. With no choice but to negotiate, the West Roman Emperor Honorius paid them off with huge quantities of silks, skins and spices, as well as £5,000 of gold and £30,000 of silver. He also made assenting noises towards settling the Goths in the Roman West. Pleased, Alaric withdrew from the vicinity of Rome. But like Stilicho, Honorius didn't, or perhaps couldn't, live up to his promises. At this time, remember, the Roman West was experiencing multiple simultaneous convulsions. The Vandals, Alans and Suevi 
had crashed across the Rhine and laid waste to Gaul in 406, and were by this time ravaging Spain and were just about to start settling there by force. The usurper Constantine had won over Gaul to his side, and, having been left without protection from Saxon raiders, Britain had fallen out of the empire's orbit altogether. The Roman West had lost close to a million square miles of territory and was facing overwhelming odds against a multitude of enemies, including Alaric's Visigothic supergroup. Even if Honorius had wanted to, where would he have settled them? Not in abandoned Britain, usurper held Gaul or lost Spain. Not in Italy, too close to the centre of power and not in the critical revenue-producing regions of North Africa. Nowhere, it seems, was suitable. And anyway, amazingly, the Roman political and military elite, who must have been blinded to the writing on the wall, were still raising serious opposition to doing any kind of deal with the Visigoths at all. So, the Visigoths were left hanging again. Then came the final straw. In 410, while he waited for a meeting with Honorius to try to break the deadlock, Alaric was ambushed by a rogue Roman force, possibly led by one of his own Gothic rivals. He swatted the ambush away easily enough, but Alaric was outraged. He spanned full circle and immediately led all of his 40,000 Visigothic warriors back to the gates of Rome. By now, they must have been champing at the bit to sate their appetite for vengeance. They mounted a siege and prepared a major assault on the walls. But after just a few days, someone suddenly opened the Salarian Gate. We're not sure who or why. But after years of being messed around, insulted and ambushed, the Visigoths gleefully poured into Rome, firing the starting gun on three nightmarish days of rape and pillage. The city was more than a thousand years old by the year 410, and as mistress to the known world, she had accumulated loot and treasure beyond imagining. Now the Visigoths ran amok, stripping the city bare. The wealthy senatorial houses were methodically stripped of their valuables. The temples were cleaned out, and they even took ancient Jewish treasures that the Romans themselves had looted from the destruction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem 300 years before. The Roman garrison put up a token resistance, but facing a horde of crazed and vengeful Visigoths were easily swept aside. It was the citizens of Rome who bore the brunt of the rampage. Pelagius, a Roman monk from Britain, said that every house was a scene of misery and equally filled with grief and confusion. The slave and the man of quality were in the same circumstances and everywhere the terror of death and slaughter was the same. It might sound incredible though, but by the standards of the day, it was a relatively civilised sack. The great looting was not accompanied by mass destruction, and while the area around the Salarian Gate was given a pretty good going over, 
and many of the houses on the wealthy Aventine were set ablaze. Most buildings and monuments were left undamaged and in place. The Visigoths had become Christians since crossing the Danube and allocated the basilicas of St. Peter and St. Paul as places of sanctuary. Some warriors even escorted holy ladies there. It is certainly clear, though, that many people were killed and enslaved, and refugees fled to the Eastern Empire in droves. In the Holy Land, St. Jerome wrote, Every day we are receiving in this holy Bethlehem men and women who were once noble and abounding in every kind of wealth, but are now reduced to poverty. We cannot relieve these sufferers. All we can do is sympathise with them and unite our tears with theirs. The shock reverberated around the Roman world. Jerome went on, Who would believe that Rome, built up by the conquest of the whole world, had collapsed? Prosper of Aquitaine mused that they were seeing the disintegration of the frame of the fragile world. People really felt that they were seeing the end of everything they knew, the destruction of their way of life and the foundation of their understanding of the way the world worked. They would have known and been raised on the concept of Roman superiority, surrounded by Roman roads and aqueducts, imbued with the merits of law, public bathhouses and the civilising influence of Romanness. And they will have been told scary stories of barbarians as children, great brutish bearded men coming with their guttural languages, animalistic cravings and sharpened swords. Now the barbarians were here, making their nightmares real. Many will have known that Britain had been abandoned, Gaul was in ruins and anyway in control of a usurper, that Spain was lost to a whole bunch of Vandals, Alans and Suevi, and that now a Visigothic supergroup bent on vengeance had just subjected the cradle of Roman civilization to a staggering ram raid. From a Roman perspective, it must have been truly terrifying. The Goths, though, were elated. When they left Rome, they did so drunk on wine and success, weighed down with booty which included a noteworthy prize, a certain Galla Placidia, the Roman emperor's own sister. But, as we'll see in our next episode, while the sack of Rome was a symbolic cataclysm for the Roman world, and a very real one for the Roman people, in itself it did no major harm to the empire's ability to fight back. Indeed, a figure was soon to rise in the form of Flavius Constantius, who would show just how much fight the Roman West still had. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, the Western Roman Empire was about to experience a resurgence of epic proportions, and the various usurpers and barbarian invaders cowered as it reasserted its might. Join us next time for Rome Resurgent. Thanks for listening. See you then.